Welcome back, everyone, to another episode of the Music and Photography Podcast. I'm Billy Safford, and on today's episode, I'm delighted to be speaking with Art Maripol. Art, uh, thank you for having me. I'm, I'm honored to be here. Thank you so much, <laughs> Billy. For sure. And what I what I should say, thank you for agreeing to be on the show, but also your hospitality, because if the listeners notice any kind of different quality to the audio, uh, you were kind enough to have me over and show me some of your prints and and so we are recording from your workspace today and and just really appreciate your hospitality thank you in reading your bio on your website you originally were grew up in or born in california or grew up there long beach my parents were living there when i was born older brother and sister were born there and my dad's family was out there my mother's family was in texas and i they eventually decided to live in texas my dad was an engineer in the, and worked in the petroleum industry, okay. and jobs in Texas for that for him like that were, uh, you know, pretty common. So they ended up in, in Houston initially, and then moved to Dallas Fort Worth area. Okay, and so the one thing that caught my eye er, early or high up in your in your bio that may not immediately seem connected to our our <laughs> topics today, but I thought maybe it'd be a good icebreaker to start on is that at some point you ended up being a cook in a Chinese restaurant. <laughs> so how did that go? Uh, we, my parents decided to make changes in their life. They were not thrilled with the way things were in Dallas at what, when I was in, and I was near the, about the end of my junior year in high school and we had moved a number of times. I went to eight, eight schools in 12 years. So we moved around, not like a military family, but we moved a lot. So my parents found jobs in Fayetteville, Arkansas. They both got hired at this, the big hospital there. And my mother was director of nursing, and my dad was going to be managing the whole facility or something. And we all moved to Fayetteville, and I'm, I, I moved at the end of my junior year in high school, where I was going to a high school in Dallas. And things didn't work for them, so they eventually moved back to Dallas. But uh, I stayed. But at, I didn't know anybody. Fayetteville was a one high school town, right. and I'd come from an inner city school in Dallas to Fayetteville, which was far advanced academically and socially than than the school I was in in Dallas, surprisingly. But the, with the university there, so much to the the students, their parents were professors and things. But I didn't know anybody. And they didn't, they weren't rude to me. I was just not on their radar. These were kids who grew up since kindergarten together. Right. And it was their senior year in high school when I, you know, and I was just nobody. So I went and signed up for the yearbook and joined the yearbook staff and they, the guy who was the 
the sponsor of your book. Actually, it was not sponsor. It was a class. Put the camera in my hand and said, you're the photographer. <laughs> I think it was a Minolta Hymatic E, I think okay. the camera was. And we just, I shot with that little thing on automatic and took the film into the drugstore. Didn't learn much other than the fact that how to approach somebody with a camera, maybe. Right. So I didn't know anybody my senior year, really. And so when after graduation, I'm in this town waiting for college to start in the fall, which is just a few blocks from where I'd been going to high school. And I needed a job. And I heard that there was an opening for a cook at this Chinese restaurant in town. It was a wonderful restaurant. It was down a dirt road in the middle of nowhere. The family that owned it were not Chinese, but everybody thought they were. It was Susie Wong's Rice Bowl. Okay. And it was a fantastic place. And probably between Springfield, Missouri, and Tulsa, it was the only Asian food around in those days. Right. And I showed up to apply for the job just as the woman, Susie Wong, her name was actually Violet Hoyt, but people knew her, Susie Wong. She pulled up in her car, and she'd been to a county auction and had bought a bunch of insulation for use somewhere. And her her trunk lid was up, and it had like twine holding it half closed over these big bales of insulation. And I, she pulled up, and I just got out of the car and said, can I give you a hand with that? She basically said, you're hired. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, right. so I had to learn 80 dishes in about two weeks. I grew up learning to cook from my mother. Okay. She was a nurse, worked full-time, and she'd get off... And get home from her seven to three shift by the time we got home from school. And the first thing she would do is start cooking in the kitchen. We always had a big dinner, family dinner every night. And so I started, when I was really young, helping her by hanging out with her. And we would, she would drink beer or margaritas and we'd play cribbage or something (laughs) or or gin rummy. and, And she would cook. And so she would start asking me, taste this. What do you think of that? And, or do you think this needs salt? And I learned kind of like that. Right. And so by the time I was in high school, I'd call and she'd say, we're making chicken cacciatore tonight. I said, okay, I'll get it started. You know, or whatever it was, you know, a pork roast, anything. I could cook. And so I learned real fast at the restaurant and I had this big wall of these sharp knives and a big cutting board that was 10 feet long and uh, two giant 36-inch woks and a lot of steam and and a lot of peanut oil. And (laughs) my whole, I did that basically my whole freshman year in college because I didn't have any money and it gave, pretty much guaranteed me a meal five nights a week. Right. But I had to spend my freshman year smelling like that peanut oil. <laughs> <laughs> well, it is a little bit of a tease because the subject matter of photography for you over the years has included a food element. So maybe we'll touch on that <laughs> as, as the story goes along. But just at that point where you left off the story starting in college. So this is at University of Arkansas. Right. So Woo Pig. Thank you. <laughs> you studied journalism there. I did. Right? I I was going to be a photographer always, mm-hmm. but there was really the degree I wanted to get was in journalism, and I did that. And it was a small department, and what was great about it being small was that if you wanted to apply yourself to something, you could do it. And right. there wasn't a lot of competition for, to do any one thing, but the people that were there were really committed. This was my freshman year. Was It was still probably two years before Watergate broke. Right. So the, the department was not small after Watergate. All of a sudden, everybody wanted to be a journalist, and the department <laughs> sure. expanded rapidly after that. But actually, when I was a freshman, after school started that fall, I went to the yearbook and newspaper, the darkroom they had for the yearbook and newspaper on campus, and asked if I could be a photographer. Mm-hmm. I was naive as I'm <laughs> unbelievable. I looked like I was 12 years old back then, too. <laughs> Uh, the photographer, one of the photographers there was nice as he could be to me. He's, he was probably a senior. I mean, he was 
seemed like an old guy to me. And he walked me and showed me this big dark room. It was beautiful, really great dark room they had. And he says, so what do you, you know, what do you think about this? And he says, I said, well, I've never been in a dark room. I said, you know, I said, but he said, you can learn that. It's not a big deal. You know, we'll, we'll show you a few things and you'll be fine. He said, and he, we talked some more and he finds us, what kind of camera do you use? I said, I mean, you don't give me one. <laughs> <laughs> and he kind of didn't say something for me. And he's fine. I said, why don't you take this semester to go learn some basic photography somewhere and get a camera and then come back next spring. And I did. And they put me on staff right immediately at next spring. And I, so I shot for the school's yearbook and for the school's newspaper, for the sports information department, for the student union, which sponsored all the concerts on campus. And anybody who would basically pay me $2 for an 8 by 10 Right. And you, and you showed me a few minutes ago your very first camera that you got when you were nine. So you yeah. had that photography bug early. What were you shooting when you did get a camera to start shooting in college? I, I don't remember the woman's name and I don't even know how I knew her but I'd met this middle-aged woman through somebody who said she had a camera she could loan me and it was a Minolta SRT 101 okay and it had two lenses and I didn't even know what to do with two lenses <laughs> and she handed me this bag with this body and two lenses and said when you're through with it bring it back and I kept it for about a year and used it gently then after that, I'd saved up enough money, and about the same time that the Olympus OM-1 came out. Okay. And I bought one of those with a couple lenses, and that was my main camera through college until I started newspapers when I finally switched over to Nikons. Okay. You know, you mentioned Watergate and the influence that had on people wanting to look at a career in journalism. And that whole era from the late 60s, of course, into the early 70s, I mean, there were a lot of things <laughs> going on. Uh, newsworthy that maybe had a, a similar effect on people. I'm I'm curious what a what all you study. What is the curriculum for a journalism degree like? But especially at that time, where maybe you know there was a lot of distrust of the government in general. But you've got to tell these stories. You want to do it ethically. I mean, I mean, sort of. What are all? What did they teach you when you're learning to become a journalist formally what do they try and instill in a, in a young aspiring journalist there was a lot of classes on writing mm -hmm. and writing skills and editing and copy editing and things like that there was gosh i don't remember some of the courses i took they only had one photo course it was okay. how to load a camera and how to develop a roll of film and i was already well ahead of that course when i took it and there was there was communications law and that was probably the hardest course that you had to go through it was uh, it was pretty intense and and it was about what's correct and what's ethical and what's illegal and those kinds of things. And it was, you know, copyright law and um, slander and libel law, things like that. Right. And what I did was I tried to take as many other courses on campus in different areas as I could. I tried to get rid of all my electives early so I could just take whatever I wanted. And I took courses in Chinese history and in logic and a lot of different things that just were interesting to me right. and tried to really have a broader just get a broader education. I didn't try in the public schools, first through 12th grade. I didn't really try very hard. Right. I wasn't focused like I should have been. And when I got to college, it was really all on me instead of instead of it being about a teacher or a class, it was it was all on me to do it or not. Right. And I really began to apply myself and try to educate myself then. I didn't hadn't really tried enough before. I, I was kind of lazy, I think. Right. 
Okay, and you mentioned that you actually started working for a paper before you graduated, right? I did. I was in the hallway one day in the journalism department uh, between classes, and the, the chairman of the department, which is now the School of Journalism and Strategic Media, he stopped me in the hallway and said, hey, I hear there's an, there's an opening for a photographer here in town at the paper. You need to get down there right away. <laughs> and he kind of whispered it to me in the hallway. So I right. said, okay. And I pretty much went straight down there after that. And the newspaper was probably the last old lead-type paper in the state. A line of types, right. you know, with boiling, you know, hot lead being poured and stuff. And it was a fantastic experience. <laughs> and um, they hired me. They had a full-time photographer that had just left. Mm-hmm. And they had a part-time photographer who was made the full-time photographer. And so... They hired me to be half the time photographer and half my hours as working on the sports desk, writing sports headlines and doing a layout and things. Okay. And I did sports for a very short amount of time before they realized I needed to be shooting. <laughs> <laughs> right. right. I wasn't a, well, not a great writer. I can write, but I'm um, not like the writers who know what they're doing, you know. Right. So what was, and this was, of course, in the film days. Yes. Oh, yes. So what was that like? I mean, you've got you know, the deadlines for when the papers have to go to press and the editors have to look at them first. So if you go out in the morning and shoot something, well, maybe I should start with your schedule. What was the schedule for a full day like? And at what point did you have to turn in images and did you develop them or did somebody else? And how did, how did all, how did the logistics work? I worked at that paper and as, and I worked at three other ones. I interned at a news, a real small newspaper that was a great lesson in community journalism. A really small town, but fantastic, really respected newspaper. Uh, and then I worked at several other papers in Arkansas and Texas. So in all of them, you had to uh, make certain deadlines. And you did your own film developing. We didn't have somebody that did that for you. So you would get an assignment and go shoot, come back, process the film, and turn it in, file the negatives, and then they might hand you another assignment, and you'd go do that one. And then in the evening, you might have a basketball game. And... You would have deadlines, and deadlines were interesting because they were real deadlines, and they weren't. And they weren't like have this in by ten. It was have this in by ten oh seven. Wow. <laughs> and uh, I remember when I started the newspaper in Little Rock, which was a really wonderful paper. The guy who was the city editor was, uh, I think he, had, he was probably one of the guys who held the flag at Iwo Jima. He was that kind of tough guy, <laughs> right. and he was a he was a World War II veteran, and he had that Marine haircut and he looked like a drill instructor and when you walked in this big newsroom with all these rows and rows of desks and writers working and hammering away at the keyboards and there's all typewriters you know um he was the first person you approached and he wouldn't even learn your name if you hadn't been there a year and uh, my first time i was i'd just been there a few days and i was shooting a fire late at night and had to make deadline and i came in and it was like deadline was like 11 12 or something like that and it was probably 10 50 and i rushed in and developed the film at probably 80 degrees so it would get done faster uh slung water thing in its negatives printed them wet uh and squeegeed the prints off barely washed them figured if they got to last long enough for them to to add them to the paper you know process them and i took these two eight by tens out to the newsroom and set them in front of the city editor on the and he was looking down, and he never even looked up at me. I don't think I, I, he hadn't even seen my face before, probably. And he picked them up, never looked up, ripped them in half, and said, What else you got? <laughs> oh, <no. laughs> it was like, Well, I didn't bring you my second best. <laughs> <laughs> right. 
so I went back to the darkroom and recropped them and made new prints of the same things and brought them back out. And he said, thank you. <laughs> it was, they were tough, but right. uh, they were great days. And working with one of the things I can say about throughout my career is that I've been really lucky to work with talented people. And there's no better way to look good than if you work with the people around you that are really good. Right. You know, they can lift you and, and teach you so much. So. Sure, I'll bet. And talk a little bit because you do have to. I mean, it seems sort of like a crash course in photography to be a newspaper photographer, just given the variety of events and um, things that you need to cover. Uh, talk through maybe kind of like what a typical day might be for you. At, at the Gazette in Little Rock, um, which unfortunately is gone, it lost the newspaper in the newspaper wars. No telling if it would have survived anyway, even if it hadn't, because the things have changed so much then, since then. But a typical day was, sometimes I would get a, an assignment the night before to do in the morning on my way in. Sometimes I would come in and they'd send me right back out. Uh, some days I'd not. But I would usually have an assignment in the morning that could be a rotary meeting for at, at lunchtime, or, let's say, or something like that. I might have to do a story on somebody who had... Uh, you know, somebody in business who had done something incredible, opened a business or something, or who wouldn't know whatever it was, then I might end up shooting a, a society party at a country club, which was never fun. Um, <laughs> because, you know, they would have preferred you came in the back door right. and, you know, didn't want you there anyway. Of course, we probably all look pretty bad compared to those people. <laughs> but then you might, from there, you might go to a high school football game and then and have a deadline for that. And, uh, that was a very typical kind of day, anywhere from three to five assignments a day on average. And you would go in and process your film, make prints, go back out, shoot again. And I think I was driving a, a, a 81 Honda Accord most of those years. And I think I put 250,000 miles on wow. it in six years. Uh, <laughs> just driving around town, mostly around the state. Right. But we covered the state border to border every day, so you might have a, a shoot somewhere in, in Pine Bluff or in Camden, Arkansas or something. And okay. um, When I was working at the newspaper in Texarkana on the state line between Texas and Arkansas, on Friday night, high school football, which was always fun, sure. I might shoot as many as three high school games on a Friday night. I would start at the one furthest away, like a game with the Atlanta Rabbits would be playing <laughs> Lyndon Kildare. And so you would start at their game and pray you could get something by the end of the first quarter so you had enough time to drive to the next game and shoot something before halftime. Right. So you could use halftime to drive all the way back to town and shoot one more third quarter <laughs> and then run to the newspaper on deadline and hope you got it all right. And, <laughs> all right. and that was pretty typical. And then on Saturday, you would shoot a college game. and On Sunday, you'd shoot a pro game, go to Dallas or something and shoot the Cowboys. Or something. It was just... I was literally shooting over from three to five football games every weekend. And, right. and then in the basketball, it was Tuesday, Thursday, and Saturday, we were shooting basketball. So sports was a lot of it, but mm -hmm. I was not a great sports shooter. <laughs> I, knew, right. I, knew, I knew great sports shooters, and I know I wasn't one. <laughs> I was good at the, uh, the emotional side of the game, the, right. the jubilation or dejection, the, the, you know, those things. But I, wasn't a, I, I worked with some other photographers who were great at sports. They could anticipate action. When I didn't grow up playing sports. I was uh, physically not very gifted <laughs> right. and uh, didn't, just didn't learn sports. And I was one of those asthmatic kids, and it, it went away when I was 18, fortunately. And I ended up becoming pretty good at soccer and, and, and some other sports and things. I'm okay, but uh, I, if you don't grow up playing those sports and you're trying to photograph them, you don't know what to shoot because you don't know where the action is. Right. And um, you, don't know, we you can't anticipate plays or what... The, 
the personalities are always going to try at a certain situation. And so I had to learn sports really fast. Right. And I became a big sports fan because being down the sideline of, of games and you learn that in third third down situation, this quarterback's going to do that. And here's his go-to guy. And right. and you start anticipating and learning a lot. So that's made me appreciate sports in a, in a way that I didn't growing up. Okay. Well, and speaking of some of those other photographers, I mean, when you... When you're in that kind of world, I'm sure there's a little bit of competition between you and bit. the other <laughs> <laughs> photographers. I mean, what is, you know about who can get the better shot um, if you're jostling for position at a press oh, yeah. conference or something like that. So, kind of what what was give us a little bit of insight into that world. Well, we like we were in a newspaper war in Little Rock with another paper, the Democrat. And we both covered this. We're both statewide morning dailies, and everybody knew that one day one of those papers was going to go under, and we were trying to make sure it wasn't us. And uh, but we also knew that everything you went to, there would be a photographer from the other newspaper there, mm-hmm. and they were going to be trying to outshoot you. And they knew that, like you knew that next morning, your editor and their editor are both going to pick up the paper and compare what you did, right. and and all your fellow photographers would be comparing what you did and stuff. And it was. <laughs> High intensity and a lot of fun and a real challenge and exciting. And it was, I mean, it really sharpened you up and made you, you were, we were all on hair triggers all the time about at any event, you know, what's going, where do I need to be? Where's the best shot? And you would do, sometimes do things like find a, an angle for a picture that was terrible and go over and shoot it anyway and then walk away from it only to watch the other guy go over there and shoot the same thing. And you'd say, gotcha. <laughs> <laughs> but it, it was... It was exciting. It was a lot of fun. And, and as far as the sports, the, one of the photographers I worked with a lot uh, that was really great at sports, we would get sent to football games, away games for the Arkansas Razorbacks. We might go to Waco against Baylor or Texas A&M and go to College Station. And, and what we had to take a darkroom with us. Mm-hmm. And we had a big trunk that had an enlarger and trays and chemicals. And we would put that thing on an airplane and go to the game and we'd set up either in the basement of the stadium or in a bathroom in a hotel room most of the time it was a hotel bathroom and we'd we'd set up where the enlarger was on the toilet seat mm-hmm. and you'd kind of sit on the floor with your legs wrapped around the toilet <laughs> and you had the trays in the bathtub next to you oh, wow. and you would process film and then in the make prints in the trays and that you had to transmit them back on this old thing that looked like a kind of a big heavy typewriter case and they had this drum that you wrap the pictures around it to send it back and it took nine minutes to send one picture oh wow <laughs> and the the photographer that i worked with a lot that was so good at sports we'd go to the game and i'd shoot the first half and then i'd get his film and my film and i usually was the one that went back early to start processing and printing and getting pictures seen and while he stayed for the end of the game for any final shot that was you know right. critical or something then he'd come back in and i'd take a break and let him take <laughs> over for a while it was a trip right okay and so it was during this time of your career right when you first started getting exploring concert photography actually when i was when i earlier when i was talking about at the when i was at arkansas in school the student union sponsored concerts okay and i didn't have any money i was really a broke student like right. a lot of people were back then <laughs> i paid my way through college but i but i say that and i don't mean to brag as much as the fact that it was only two hundred dollars a semester Right. It's nothing like it is today. Nobody sure. could do that. You'd have to be wealthy to, to pay. You can't work your way through college. It's just impossible now. Right. But back then, I, I didn't have $200 a lot of semesters. <laughs> so I worked for everybody on campus that would pay me $2 for a picture or anything else, an assignment. And because the student union sponsor, sponsored all the concerts on, on campus, mm-hmm. 
And they brought in great shows. And so I started shooting for them so I could go to all the concerts. Okay. And that was what really got me started. And I, I learned very quickly that it was kind of like a news event choreographed for you and lit for you. And it was exciting. <laughs> and you would, back the early show things I went to, there was, there was no rules. I mean, anybody with a camera who thought they were a photographer, which was still not that many people, because it was something about almost magical about being able to make a photograph back then. Right. And there would be five or six of us up kneeling down in front of the stage trying to get pictures. And I remember one show was Frank Zappa. Mm -hmm. And uh, we're all these scrawny little white kids, <laughs> you know, college kids with long hair in front of the stage. And he had a, a guy who I've since learned a lot more about, but he was his val personal valet and bouncer and whatever else. Mm -hmm. And he looked like the black Mr. Clean. Okay. He wore a pair of wool slacks, mm -hmm. no shirt, no shoes, and had a sap in his back pocket. And he had a gold earring. And, of course, this was the time where you just didn't see a guy with a gold earring. And right. he was huge. And he came out before the show started and just leaned against the wall, the corner of the stage, and nodded some guy. And that, that guy ran over to says, he says no pictures until the concert, till he says yes in the concert. <laughs> so after a while, Zappa comes out, lights go down, the music starts, and we're all sitting there. And we're not lifting our cameras up at all. Mm -hmm. And finally, the guy runs over and says, he says it's okay now. So we start shooting. <laughs> But very quickly, within a year or so, it started getting limited to the three-song thing. And right. uh, But I, I was just getting down in front of the stage, in front of everybody, and getting in free, feeling that moment where the lights go down, the screams in the crowd fire up, and people are yelling in, their, in anticipation, and you can just hear all the monitors humming with that electric energy and waiting for that first chord. That moment just got to me, and I fell in love with it. And so after I left college... The first newspaper I went to, like that one in Fayetteville, they didn't cover concerts. But I wanted to keep shooting concerts. And so back then, you could only shoot a concert if you went through the record companies. And it was either New York or L.A. because they didn't allow cameras in at all. And uh, you had to get a letter from your editor on company stationery stating who you were representing and what you would be doing there. And uh, so I got the editor to write one for me and got a credential to a concert. And next time there was a show in town, I just called them up on the phone and said, hey, it's me again. And they said, okay, it'll be a will call. Credentials will be a will call. Right. And so I did that for years like that. Okay. And sometimes I was shooting for newspapers, sometimes just for myself. But I was going to shoot no matter what. And it was, right. and I didn't care if it was a stadium or a little club. It's live music. Shooting live music is just fantastic. Absolutely. One of the things that I, I used to really love and I'm not used to I love and admire all the old jazz photos from the 30s and 40s and sure. 50s and there's just so much atmosphere but you don't get that anymore because nobody smokes right. and all that smoke that was in those clubs made the light just magic it was right. probably miserable to be in but <laughs> <laughs> so it, it it's different when I was shooting than that was but it's changed so much now I'm sure that I wouldn't even understand how to get into a show just I mean it seems so confusing now i mean i'm sure i know there's a guy here in town who's fantastic at concerts uh josh wishman and his work is incredible mm -hmm. and uh, he could tell me how to get in i mean sure but <laughs> it's it's not done through the record companies necessarily depending on who it is i mean if, if it was taylor swift sure but right you know so many bands are if they're playing at one of the nicer venues around town maybe you go directly through the band or maybe their management company or the venue i don't i don't really even know so right and having talked to a few people who still do this or have done this in the not too distant past, you know, I think 
and, and this makes sense, but Instagram and all of these social media sites really ratcheted up this idea that, you know, artists want to control their image, and that's fair. You know, I yeah. get that. So they don't want just anybody posting anything, you know, because some people aren't professionals. <laughs> right. And you may, you know, take an unflattering picture of them or whatever. And yet, at the same time, there's all these fans out in the crowd posting blurry iPhone shots that are equally not flattering, <laughs> one, one might think. So that's one part of it, is the whole artist, you know, being cognizant of their image and what that means to them and their career, you know, that they're building. And then this was a thing I had kind of asked you about, the relationship between the photographer and the artist in in general, but I had asked you specifically about interactions and you ended up getting one of your images on the cover of the Stevie Ray Vaughan book. And all of that is to say, I mean, I mean that, that was obviously a very good turn of events from a picture <laughs> very that <good>. you made. <laughs> Did you ever get any other kind of feedback from artists about specific images? You never did. Made? And never once. I had credentials to shoot shows, and mm -hmm. they didn't let you in the dressing rooms. You could go backstage, but right. nobody's backstage other than the people that are bringing stuff in and out of the dressing room. Right. The stars are hiding out. You know, you didn't see them. Occasionally, you would you briefly meet somebody. Huey Lewis, the radio station, local radio station, had a contest where you got to meet Huey and so okay. the last second they grabbed me backstage and said come over shoot a picture of these people the winners with <laughs> Huey but but that was it you didn't really meet those people very much right in a smaller club as opposed to a an arena show or something you might have a, a chance to meet people like I did Buddy Guy and Junior Wells at a, at a mm -hmm. club and Roy Buchanan went to a show and photographed him and got him to do portraits for me and did the same thing with Chick Corea once at a show and you know you could do that occasionally but you didn't there was not much interaction. They were there. To, you were there to photograph, and they were there to get the picture taken. And you know, right. they're not. They're not opening up, telling you your life story or anything, or taking you to dinner. <laughs> so you'd meet. You'd meet a few people, but it was never what people think of. Oh, backstage. Right. No, backstage is some dirty dishes on some on some rolling carts and <laughs> <laughs> some smelly trash cans. And <laughs> right. Tell me again, what kind of kit in film were you using in those days for a lot of that? Best I can remember, more than likely, I, I, I used an FM2 Nikon for most mm -hmm. everything. I really liked that body so much. Uh, mm -hmm. I don't know how I ever got things to focus. I couldn't now with, <laughs> with a manual focus camera like that when things are moving. Right. Uh, but the FM2 body, I, I had an F3 or F2 or F3 back then, and I liked those bodies. They were fantastic, but they were just big and heavy, and I liked a lighter body. And the FM2 with a small motor on it was with a wonderful body. And uh, I usually had a wide, eight, like a 24 mm -hmm. maybe, and a 2.8, and then probably a 180 2.8. Okay. There were the, the 70 to 200 zooms weren't around back then. What zooms there were, were mostly made by Vivitar and they were not crisp, you know, <laughs> like you would hope that they would be. Right. And that was my normal kit. So that if, if I'm shooting somebody on stage and they run to one side of the stage, up, farther away, I picked the 180 up. And if they were running right in front of me, I'd pick up the 24 and shoot or something like that. Right. And allowed me to not have to change film as often. And if you were a show shooting and you got three songs and you're constantly rewinding and reloading, it's, <laughs> you learn to do that very fast. <laughs> right. Okay. And so, and Tri-X for black and white? Tri-X with black and white. Color, I did a mix of 
Ektachrome 400 or some sort of Ektacolor type film at 400. And I rarely pushed. Most photographers push their film. Mm-hmm. I didn't like pushing film very much. I just thought I didn't like that heavy, heavy grain contrast look. I would lose some frames because of motion and things that just wasn't intentional motion. It was just motion. <laughs> and uh, so I'd lose some frames. But the ones I did printed nicer because of it because they, they were shot at 400. Okay. So one of the events you covered that you showed me a couple of images from wasn't a quiet little club it was farm aid right <laughs> yeah the very first farm aid um a photographer i worked with in little rock at the newspaper when i when i first went there he started he and i started about the same time uh john Kerry. he ended up uh, working for united press in springfield illinois at the capitol mm-hmm. and he went on from there to chicago sometimes was their director of photography um but at the time, he was at United Press, and he knew I was good at concerts and what I was, you know, he could trust me. And so he called me and said, hey, you want to come up and shoot this, this big Farm Aid concert they're having? It was, a, it was just before or just after, I guess, Live Aid, mm-hmm. about the same time maybe, 85, anyway, September of 85. Okay. And um, I said, heck yeah. So <laughs> I actually took the train from Little Rock with my gear up, and he picked me up at, at the up in Illinois at, at, in Springfield, and we shot all a couple of days before where they were doing press events and things to promote the concert. And then the day of the concert, it's this, it's an old this I think it was Memorial Stadium. It's a huge old like a you know memorial. I think it was World War One Memorial maybe okay. as opposed to it, right. it, was, it was an old right. place, but it was a big old stadium, and the weather was not very good. It was it rained a little bit off and on all day. It was gray light and stuff. But unlike most shows where you're in the pit, and most of the drivers at the, at the show were in a, in a photo pit, I was up on stage because I was representing the wire service. And one corner of the stage had me and Lucian Perkins, a phenomenal photographer that was at the Washington Post at the time. Mm-hmm. And at the opposite corner of the stage was somebody from the Associated Press and another newspaper, I think the New York Times. And we were on stage all day. And usually... After years of shooting concerts and getting the, to shoot the first three songs, I was on stage all day, and the the artist got three songs. <laughs> <laughs> right. It was fantastic to be up there like that. But I, I, I there was another photographer that was wanting to be on stage that was also shooting for UPI. So at some point later in, later in the day, I, I finally begrudgingly relinquished the stage <laughs> and let him go shoot for a while. <laughs> right. Well, and so. That particular image you showed me was Bon Jovi, but um, we looked at a lot of pictures of a lot of artists at other during other events, Tom Petty and Bruce Springsteen, who played a role in you getting married, right? Well, um, let's say it was a, it was a, it was a note in my favor <laughs> that right. my wife really liked Bruce Springsteen back. This was born in I think born in the SA tour '84, right? Right. And uh, I had when we met, I had a, a this one picture of Bruce that I really liked, and I had it framed it on the wall. And when she was at my house while we were dating, she saw that and decided I was, you know, it was a mark in my favor for sure. <laughs> <laughs> right. And we're looking at uh, now some pictures of Tina Turner and Ray Charles and Merle Haggard, and uh, we looked at images of Kiss and Bo Diddley and BB King, and I just. <laughs> Were there any particularly special heroes that you got to photograph? I'm sure you enjoyed all of these people, uh, since a lot of this you were doing just because you loved doing it. But uh, any any particularly special memories? Well, 
a lot of for different reasons. I mean, mm -hmm. I, I was actually able to photograph B.B. King a number of times and got to have, like I told you earlier, I, I, we had a, a meal together once and, mm -hmm. and I photographed him a number of times. Once he had never played his club on Beale Street and he was finally scheduled to play there. So I drove to Memphis and I, I was able to schedule, oh, this is when I was working for Southern Living. So I was able to schedule a shoot with him at his club in the afternoon and I wanted to get him out front under the neon BB King sign right. with Lucille, and, right. and he was running late. And by the time he got there, it started pouring down rain. Oh, no. and I said, I, "He said, what are we going to do?" And I said, "Well, I was going to get you out front in front under the sign, but it's pouring down rain." He says, "I don't care. I won't melt." <laughs> I said, "Okay, well, let's go." And I said, "But what about Lucille?" He says, "I got another Lucille in the back. It's okay." <laughs> and he could not. There was probably no nicer gentleman in the industry than BB King. I mean, right. just what a gentle, nice man he was. Right. But. There was great surprises. I was, there were people I wasn't a fan of necessarily until I saw them live and saw how amazing as an entertainer they were. There was people I didn't know a thing about it until I, I photographed it. I was doing Kiss in 1983 in Pine Bluff, Arkansas, which was a you know, very conservative. Right. This was eight, 1983, and um, Kiss was at that point where the churches were still showing up outside the venues to, to protest because <laughs> it was satanic and things like that. Right. And... The parents out front had no idea that uh, Wendy L. Williams and the Plasmatics were the opening act. And talk about something that was, Kiss was, you know, bubblegum compared to that. <laughs> and I didn't know anything about her, but she came out and, you know, she did her, her she was punk before punk. Right. And she did, had her sledgehammer where she smashed the television, playing, you know, <laughs> broadcasting the, the local news or whatever. And it was awesome. But she only wore a piece of two small strips of electrical tape on her chest <laughs> and they were misplaced oh, wow. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, most of the kids in the crowd were and they were young 14 year old boys and their dads would were taking them to this right. concert you could see the dads in the crowd grabbing the binoculars from their sons to look at her <laughs> <laughs> oh goodness all right so and you mentioned southern living which is which is our next stop but how long were you at the newspaper i did newspapers 13 years total um okay. And finished at the Arkansas Gazette in 1989. The last couple of years I was in newspapers, I was really not wanting to go out and shoot the dark stuff in life anymore. Right. I just, I'm, I'm a pretty positive, sunny person most of the time. And I was kind of depressed. I didn't, I wasn't changing sure. anything. I go to a murder scene or a fire or some tragedy and I didn't change anything by being there. And in fact, right. I wasn't even sure I was helping any in any way. And I, because we were in the newspaper war, we had a Wednesday food section and a Thursday fashion section and a Friday home section and a Sunday some other section. And so I started scheduling, trying to make sure I got scheduled to shoot for those sections during the week, which got me off the street and away from the new stuff. Right. And at the same time, didn't realize that I was building a portfolio that looked like Southern Living kind of. <laughs> right. And um, our homes editor went to the National Home Builders Convention and at lunch ended up sitting with the homes editor for Southern Living. And they were talking and... He was talking about how they need a photographer, and she was talking about how she's got this great one. And so when she came back to the paper, she told me about the job that they were looking for somebody. And I don't think she realized that I would leave her, <laughs> you know, shortly after. But I, I interviewed with Sun Living, and we I interviewed with every single editor in the building. I think they were they hired people that then they never went away. So they were very careful of who they hired, right. and um, they were particular because not only they wanted you to have the skill set photographically but you had to meet people and you would go to a small town and you might be met by the mayor or something in small right. towns and people would take you to dinner or you might 
you might photograph somebody who then you took to dinner and they wanted to see how you handled a fork in conversation how you carried yourself it was a, it was a complete complete interview <laughs> and you had to be one of them you had to be part of the sun living look and family right and um so i ended up getting hired and it was I was ready to leave newspapers at that point, and it worked out perfect for me. I was fortunate because the paper in Little Rock only lasted two more years, okay. and they got and everybody lost their jobs. So, right. uh, I was already traveling. I mean, instead of living, I was hired initially, like that. My first job, I was partly sports and photography. There, I was shooting travel stories, and I was shooting home interiors and home decorating, and homes department. And they also learned very quickly that I should be shooting travel, not homes. <laughs> <laughs> Right. But I was on the road uh, pretty much every single week, some part of almost every week, 150 nights a year. Wow. And uh, I mean, when they say you're going to be a travel photographer, the main part of it is travel. <laughs> so, but going back to the newspaper for just a second, before you realized you were building this portfolio that had a very natural fit at Southern Living, I mean, had there, I mean, you you had this inkling that, you know, covering kind of negative events it eventually is going to take its toll was it always a plan to try and get into magazines yeah, or, or was, was there yeah. another I, I wanted to work at magazines I did okay. I always wanted to I didn't know what magazine or, or anything like that I you know everybody wanted to get your picture on the cover of Rolling Stone <laughs> sure. but I didn't really see that happening I wasn't right. um, and I I really liked what I was doing and said living sounded like a great fit and and actually it was there was it was a perfect fit and, yeah, I was. I, I think it, it was as smooth a transition as you could make because I think the timing was right on on my part, really. And I did want to go to magazines. I, I really didn't want to be in newspapers, uh, like I, I'd say. I, I didn't want to be an old news photographer. Right. But what I meant was I didn't. I didn't see myself being able to do that job at the level it needs to be done because I needed the interest and I didn't have it that sure. much anymore. Okay. And so. We've mentioned Southern Living a couple of times now, and of course I'm familiar. I've grown up in Alabama. Southern Living magazine is, is, is an iconic staple here. Anywhere you go where they sell magazines, you will find that. And it is, you know, it's right there in the title. It's about Southern Living. It's lifestyle. It's food. It's um, homes, gardens, and home. travel. Yeah, exactly. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and as you mentioned, you specialize particularly in travel. And right. For a lot of people, I have to imagine that would be, on the surface, it sounds like a dream gig, right? People are going to pay me to travel and take pictures of glamorous, <laughs> luxurious places. Is that is That's, that the reality of it? That was the reality of it. Yes, it was. <laughs> uh, I was paid to go shoot every week a place where most people saved all year to go for vacation. Right. I mean, we didn't do bad things. We went to only did nice things. So I, I saw the nicest when I, I know people who traveled in sales for in other jobs, and they might be stuck at some airport hotel, but I was going to stay at the historic hotel most of the time, or right. I was going to be exposed to the better restaurant in town, or the, the finer shops, or whatever it was. Over the years, it, it changed because it got to be somewhat of a rote routine in a lot of ways, because you were still doing what people want to do when they go to a place, which meant where to shop, where to play, uh, where to eat, where to stay those right. kinds of things and it, you know you go it's another hotel it's another and you would get that way but this the food photographers at the magazine would you know their 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 bane in life was another casserole i'm sure right um <laughs> but i i loved it and uh but i guess i music since we're talking about music i guess i can put it my early on my theme song for shooting at sudden living was willie nelson's on the road again okay and right. uh 
And then it then it became Johnny Cash's I've Been Everywhere Man. <laughs> and by the end, it was Wasted Days and Wasted Nights. I was a little Freddie Fender going. <laughs> right. Okay. I, lo- I loved the job, and I did it 24 years, and I wouldn't have done it that long had it not have been a really fantastic job. Right. I didn't meet another photographer that, that didn't want my job, you know. And <laughs> sure. I, I tell them I worked hard to get it. I'm going to keep working hard to keep it. So Right. I'll bet. So, and I don't know. You know, there's all sorts of different magazines, so I don't know how fair it is to compare, but just your experience of working in the magazine world versus a daily newspaper, daily deadlines, all of this sort of thing, kind of compare and contrast those experiences from a, being a professional photographer working in those two worlds. The newspaper world, you're the fly on the wall. You're, you're there to document and record. You're not there to, to change anything. You're not moving things you're not rearranging scenes you're not doing anything like that the magazine you were expected to and it i was a struggle for me to to learn that that i wasn't a news photographer anymore in that respect i was i would show up at at a restaurant and i would try to shoot the restaurant and you know they wanted me to to work with the chef and create pictures and it's one thing to take pictures it's another to create and that and that was a that was a real switch for me and um my work needed to be true to life what because we can't send somebody somewhere and to see something they're not going to see. Right. So our pictures had to be truthful, but they had to be the truth at its cleanest and brightest and, and most commercial looking. And right. it took me a while to figure out how to do that. Because at heart, I'm still a photojournalist, you right. know, so. Uh, and also the photographers on the staff at the magazine, were everybody was extremely talented. I mean, there were pe- people just mind-blowing, great, great photographers. And some of them would be sh- shoot four by five all day and they pull you know they're doing polaroids in the studio or whatever they're doing and they just they could wrap light around a pencil i mean it was amazing what they could do and i had a lot of i had newspaper photography and i were a flash you know you might even (laughs) might not even ever take it off the camera and all of a sudden i had to be doing multiple lighting situations and things and i really had to improve myself quickly in a lot of ways as far as finding great things to shoot that was easy but but to make sure that they looked that good in the magazine was took a little bit that, right. that was no longer being printed on papyrus like at the newspaper <laughs> i was printing on shiny paper you know right. and the, the photographers at the magazine would complain about how bad our paper was and i was going oh you don't know <laughs> <laughs> but and they also one thing that was interesting to me that was learning so much about printing and I, I knew a lot about printing from newspapers how the process worked inking and papers and things but i learned more like if you don't, I don't know if you know what a signature is in a magazine or a book. Um, it's a a page that is folded multiple times after it's printed, and that's called a signature. And usually there are 16 pages. And so if you have a book and it's 100, you'd have 10 signatures, 10 signatures for a 160 page book. Okay. Um, but they set the color for the ad, for the French's mustard ad, not for your pictures. <laughs> <laughs> so the other right. things that you had to learn. Okay. So I, I would assume a, a big thing that happened in photography during your tenure, right, was probably this transition from film to digital? It was. Okay. How, um, how, did, how did you adjust personally and how did your peers in the world adjust? We were, we were like? all ready to move forward into digital. I think I was more than about anybody. I was really pushing it. I wanted it because it's one thing in the studio where you can sit there and do Polaroids of film until you know you've got your lighting nailed and then shoot your your four by five chrome of that food. <laughs> but travel, I would get on a, I would have, the company would be paying for an airline, a rental car, a hotel, food, all the things that every week that I went out and spent money on. And I would come back with 
10, 20, 30 rolls of, of 100-speed slide film and not really know if I had it or not. Though you, right. I mean, you know you did right. to a certain extent. But to be able to shoot digitally and see what you're getting as you're there and know you've nailed it before you left would be a huge thing. So I was really pushing it early on. The magazine didn't move as fast as most publications did in a digital because they had so much film coming in that they had to build a digital management system so that things were archived and retrievable and searchable before they could actually just start feeding into it. And it took them a while to figure out that system. But once they did, I shot the first digital story for Southern Living. It was a story on the snowshoe um, in West Virginia, a big okay. ski resort. Right. And um, that was the first digital story for Southern Living. And, and that, we were all ready to, to be digital at that point. And we had the, the original Canon uh, EOS 1D, I think. Okay, yeah. Um, I think there was 12 megapixel, I think. <laughs> and they were the, larger than any Nikon had ever seen. They were huge cameras. And they were outdated. But Southern Living was very generous. They bought you the best of equipment. Okay. And if you wanted something new they would get it for you. They didn't want you to have any excuse, but, <laughs> but they also wanted you to, to be able to give them the best possible pictures. And they were, right. they were, it was working for them was fantastic. The magazine was great. I just, I can't praise that place enough. And it's changed a ton since I was there. The world has changed. I left in a little over 10 years ago in early 2013. And because the world's changed so much, they've had to change. And it's, it's not the same magazine it was, but it's the same, it's the magazine it needs to be for today. Right. And it got a great s staff and they do, beautiful work so right. okay well so, and so I wanted to ask you a few things specifically about Alabama you know as, as a hobbyist in Alabama and Alabama you know is noted for many things I don't know if photography is one of them but as a person who enjoys photography I love living in Alabama I feel like we have a, an extremely diverse place to live if you enjoy taking pictures. I mean, at the very southern tip is the Gulf of Mexico. There's all these rivers and lakes throughout the state. If you go far enough north, you're kind of, you know, we don't have real mountains here, but... But the Appalachian foothills, yeah. Yeah, yeah. you're in the foothills there. So you got some hilly regions to be in, and certainly lots of history. I, I don't know what what's kind of your... because you obviously have traveled and and sampled some of the finest that the state has to offer i mean what it, what are your thoughts on alabama as a photographic destination i guess we don't have the light you have in santa fe mm -hmm. but photographing alabama is fantastic we we also don't have the cynicism you would have photographing in miami beach right or washington dc or new york or somewhere people here are generous and and welcoming in most places and if you you know as long as you're considerate they're, they're glad to have you and but i think I've done a lot of work for Alabama Tourism Department, uh, and fortunately, Lee Sintel, as the director there, has, has been very generous with me. And the things I photograph in the state are fantastic. And there's so much history, which is my personal love, but we're one of the most biologically diverse places in the world, and people don't even know it. And whether it's the Cahaba River and, you know, or, or the, like you said, down the Gulf and things, there's just so much to shoot here. You can do landscapes, and I don't know if you know... Um, magazine Alabama, the beautiful. Mm -hmm. Yes. Yeah. Um, it's the slogan, by the way, Alabama, the beautiful. Yeah. <laughs> for everyone. <laughs> it is. It, it, that everybody in that every month that thing is so full of an incredible beauty, and um, mm -hmm. there's there's so much to shoot here, and then people from outside don't understand the state mm -hmm. because of its reputation that it earned, the, you know, unfortunately. Right. Right. But it's 
conquered so much of that and people don't know it and uh, uh, or they're, or they're shocked when they come here. I know my wife used to go to New York for work all the time. Mm-hmm. And people look at her and go, how can you live there? <laughs> and she'd look at them and go, how can you live here? <laughs> um, I, there's, I, I love history. And uh, one of the, the biggest things in my career, the things that have been most meaningful to me is, is uh, I became the photographer for the U.S. Civil Rights Trail. Mm-hmm. And... Um, that came about through Arkansas, I mean, through Alabama tourism and Lisa Intel. And uh, we documented all the civil rights sites in Alabama, uh, all these iconic sites in Birmingham, Montgomery, Selma, and other places. And then we later went back and, ex- and expanded that to the whole e- U.S. Right. And I worked with an art director, and we went from Birmingham to New Orleans to Money, Mississippi, uh, to Little Rock, to Topeka, flew to D.C., they went to, from from there to Richmond, to uh, Greensboro, North Carolina, Orangeburg, South Carolina, to Atlanta and the King Center, then back to Memphis, and then back to Birmingham. It was 10 states in 12 days and uh, like 61 sites and to create the, uh, the photography for the U.S. Civil Rights Trail. Mm-hmm. And that was an emotional journey in that you would go to where Ruby Bridges was, was the first black first grader in New Orleans schools and... Uh, then the next day being where Megar Evers was assassinated in Jackson or uh, Emmett Till in Money, Mississippi, and then the Little Rock Nine in, at Central High School in Little Rock. And every place just – I did research in advance, but when you get there and stand at those places and think about what happened there and doing them day after day, was it was a, a real journey. It was wonderful. And um, I think that art director and I are probably the only two people who have ever <laughs> been to every single one of the sites on the trail. Right. Um, and it was, and so there is a, uh, a website, and I will link that. It's in the, the it's show notes. it's just dot mm-hmm. and it's it's a great site. But so much of that comes back to, to Alabama. Birmingham is really the epicenter of the civil rights movement of that era, and I mean the, the Children's Crusade here and Sixteenth Street, and, and Bethel Baptist, and you know what and what we've done downtown with Obama naming that as a uh, national memorial site, and it's just fantastic and so I'm, i love photographing in alabama it's what i'm coming around to <laughs> right and th- and this was also compiled in a into a book a uh, couple of books the initial book the initial idea was uh, was to get alabama named a, a unesco world heritage site as i understand i might be not be mm-hmm. clear on this but this was i think that was the idea and we did a book we i contributed to, i didn't do the book but a beautiful book on alabama his, historic civil rights and right. it was presented to UNESCO, I think, in a board meeting in Paris. Mm-hmm. And they were, from what I understand, they were very, very impressed. But they said it wasn't expansive enough. It wasn't broad-based enough. Mm-hmm. And so they came back and rethought it and said, let's do the whole country. Let's make a, a U.S. Civil Rights Trail and present that and see if we can't get it. So I, as I understand it, the, Britain, the initial books we did were just to be presented to UNESCO as part of the application. Right. And as I understand it, it's working its way through and will and will happen sometime in the next year or two, we hope. Right. It's on the final list, I think. The, there's a U.S. committee that has to suggest the things to permit to, to, to suggest to UNESCO to approve for World Heritage Site, and it's on the top of the list now, I think. Okay. Well, but then they finally came out with a book on the Civil Rights Trail um, mm-hmm. last year or year before. I can't remember. It's <laughs> ever since COVID, I, I don't can't remember when things happened. Right, because there's there's right. BC before COVID and right. <laughs> <laughs> right. Well, and and as someone who appreciates history, I'm I'm sure that on a personal level, that was very emotional 
and also, you know, just a great time of reflection to visit these sites. Um, kind of what was, you know, because you have this other history that is traveling to places to shine the most positive light on them, and, and you know, it's maybe a little bit more low-key, but this is a serious topic and, and very meaningful as it should be. I mean, kind of what was the experience of maybe the people you met at these different places and talked to along the way and wanting to make sure that this story is told, you know, the best way possible. Kind of what was that experience like? For, for the Miles Wright was the art director. He was at the time he was with Lucky here in Birmingham agency and Miles was fantastic. And we did that trip and we finished after 12 days together, uh, driving in buses and planes and, we still liked each other when we got back, which was pretty <laughs> telling. But right. um, I guess the best way to tell it is we went to uh, Medgar Evers' home in Bet Jackson, and he was assassinated because he was trying to organize votes uh, in the black community. And he was very active, and he was very handsome and charismatic, had a young family. And his house didn't have a front door because he was afraid of he'd be killed coming in out of his front door where he'd be caught. And he had a carport with a door on the, so he could get on, come around his car and go in that side door. And one night when he came home from a, a meeting at midnight, there was a, somebody was, had come over and blocked it. So he, he got out of his car out in front of the house and somebody was there with a rifle and shot him. So it's, it had become a museum. And the woman who was the docent of the museum was a professor at Tougaloo College in Jackson. And this was a woman who was in her seventies, really, really suspicious when these two white kids show you know show up at the door they, she was supposed to know we were coming i don't know if the word ever got to her because she was like who are you what do you want she opened that little door on the carport right. we're standing there said well we're we're working for this we did our little song and dance tell what we were doing and so she said okay well come on in and i start photographing around the house which is left just like it was that night i guess mm -hmm. and there's still the, you can see the, the damage the bullets that from shooting him did in the kitchen where they hit things and stuff. Right. And uh, the little Formica kitchen table where the family had dinner and stuff. And, mm -hmm. and we sat there and, the, and Miles sat down and started talking with her while I shot pictures. And then I came and eventually sat back down after I was finished. And she, the longer we were there, the more open and friendly she got and the more she realized well, we, were ser we were serious and we cared and we wanted to do things right. And by the time we left, she we were hugging each other and stuff. It was, and you had to. There, were, it always made me uneasy a little bit that I was here's this white guy doing this, and why isn't a person of color doing this? And right. I, I've never figured the answer to that out, other than the fact that my skill at photography and my love of history put me in a position to get to do it, and I'm so glad I got to. But she's telling the story. We're sitting at that table where she said when she was 18 years old. She and a couple of the young girls that were just idolized at Medgar Evers would sit at that table with him and plan NAACP actions. Mm -hmm. And here she is, 70-something years old, at that same table. And it, just those kinds of stories are just, you right. know, remarkable. Right. Those special moments that you think, I'm so glad I have a camera. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely. And I, and I will post links where people can check out that work because it is very inspiring I think, and and you mentioned COVID, and in a, and so another sort of series of events that changed human history. I mean, <laughs> another project that you worked on was nursing during COVID, right? I did. It was not a big project, but I got a, right after things got really at their darkest, 
where nurses were getting sick and hospitals were being short-staffed and had all kinds of issues with things like that. Grandview Hospital here in Birmingham, one of the big hospitals here in town, Birmingham Medical Community, you know, is huge. Right. They called me, uh, their, their, their marketing person, and said, we wanted to celebrate our nurses, what they're going through. And would you be interested in photographing? Of course, it was fear of getting sick, you know, yeah. and everything. But right. I said, absolutely. And I'd love to. And so my mother was a nurse. I, I wanted to honor my mother and, and take that back to and, and honoring these nurses. And so I went to the hospital. Of course, we were masked. And at, at a couple of, one point, we went into the COVID ward to photograph nurses. And these were, I guess I would call them active environmental portraits. Mm-hmm. We went to them and at their workstation while they were working and did portraits of these nurses. And the ones in the COVID, of course, were in the full bunny suit. I mean, we looked like hazmat, you know. <laughs> Right. And um, made it hard to shoot because you couldn't really see the camera very <laughs> sure. well. But these people had, had their eyes were kind and haunted at the same time. If you can, if, it was really horrible. I mean, in a lot of ways. Right. And but it was also really nice. And what they the hospital ended up doing, I did several shoots over a period of a year like that. And they made posters of these nurses and had a quote from each nurse, and they they put the quote on the poster with their portrait and put them around the hospital on elevator doors and things like that. And so it was really exciting to go into the hospital and, and look at these portraits and see them on the walls and what they had done with them. And I, I, I understand that the nurses were really thrilled with it. Right. And I worked, uh, there's a photographer here in town that's really uh, doing great work named Andy Rice. Mm-hmm. And I don't know if you've ever heard of Noah Andy, but he's the world's greatest gentleman. And uh, Andy uh, assisted me. He was assisting okay. a lot. He started out initially assisting in town, uh, Lisa Cole, mm-hmm. I think. And he's he's now, sh- Andy's shooting for the New York Times, Washington Post, Bloomberg, you know, things like that. Right. But he he was assisting me on that shoot. And the two of us were, we looked pretty goofy with our, <laughs> our big head-to-toe white outfits on and stuff. Right. And did most of that with, with a... Um, a couple of speed lights and an umbrella on a stand and a radio slave and and just just the one light because they were really quick and we were doing 20 or 22 portraits in one day so we there wasn't a lot of time to set up multiple lights and move we had to be able to move and move quick so sure. and it worked really well right okay well and so maybe on a little bit lighter note but tying together alabama and project work you also did uh, work on Alabama barbecue places, right? <laughs> and so this is where we, this is where we tie together yeah. our initial story about a, about being a cook, along with your food and lifestyle work for Southern <laughs> Living and and Alabama barbecue. So that must have been a fun project to work on, right? It was a blast. Um, people would I, the book came out in 2014, and I, I've been talking to people saying we need to do volume two. So many things have changed, but I think I photographed 81 barbecue restaurants in 10 weeks. And people say, did you eat all that? I said, no, I tasted it, but I didn't eat it. <laughs> and it was just, it was hot summertime and being around these pits and all that. I couldn't have eaten all that food and still worked, right. but it, it was fantastic. I, I would drive and shoot two or three or four barbecue places in a day. So the first one I'd get there in the morning when they were starting their fires up at 4 a.m. or something and, and get them around the pits and things. And each place had something different. Some of them it was about the food. Some of them was about their pit, amazing pit or something like that. Some of them it was watching them preparing food. It was just whatever worked. Some of them the pit master had so much personality they became the story. I okay. was I would just show up somewhere and and kind of discover what would work best at each place. And um, the, right. this came about, this is actually how I got introduced to Lee Sintel at Alabama Tourism. 
I had just left Southern Living and um, was starting freelance and was just getting started. And a rider that I worked with at Southern Living, a great travel rider named Annette Thompson, Lee knew her and hired her to write this book. And he was mulling over different photographers to hire. And she said, you need to get Art Maripol. She's photographed more restaurants than anybody I know. You know? <laughs> and so Lee, I was in the backyard here, and Lee called me one afternoon just on the phone. And he was very, I don't know if I would ever make a deal as casually now as I did then. But I was <laughs> new to freelance and hungry. And I, he said, right. we're going to do this book, and I'll pay you this much to do each one. And I said, okay. <laughs> no written, nothing written down and no contracts or anything. Huh? Right. And um, I just started shooting and, and on the assumption that it would work out. And it worked out beautifully because Lee's a great guy. And and the book, from my understanding, has been through several printings. And uh, okay. I know there are people who drive around the state with that in their car and keep <laughs> keep it in the car. So, well, the the page I op I just opened the book and it came open to Green Top, and that's just a couple of miles from my house. Oh, really? So I'm okay. Very familiar with that one. I don't have a good sense for the reputation out. You know, if you're not local, uh, if if there was a place, I would assume people had heard of it would be Dreamlands. Which is a, a an institution here, certainly for ribs. I mean, if you were going to recommend a barbecue place for people to check out, if they're ever in the area, any any, any tips for anyone? I have different places I like for different reasons. Right. I think overall, if I had to name my my number one place in the state, it would be Archibald's okay. in New and uh, Northport, just you know outside of Tuscaloosa. Right. I just think the experience there and and the quality of the food. This is hard to beat. It's kind of like Dreamland was before it became more fleshed out with a menu. Dreamland, you know, originally was ribs and white bread and, and, and a Coke. I think that was it. That's right. You would you would come in and very sparse menu. And they didn't even need one because nope. they're going to bring you some ribs and, and a loaf of bread, basically. <laughs> yeah. And but I love Archibald's. And here in Birmingham, I'm I'm a big fan of um, Saw's uh, Soul Kitchen in okay. Avondale. I just right. they they're doing a great job there but i think if you want chicken miss myra's it's hard mm -hmm. to beat you know I, for different things i like different places sure. uh rib tips there's a place called uh rib it up mm -hmm. over on and in, in over just west of 65 in downtown right there's different places i like for different reasons there's a, a place called hog wild and gulf and gulf shores that a, a really young couple got married but they were students at alabama and mm -hmm. tuscaloosa got married and opened this graduate open this barbecue restaurant and they right. don't look like gar barbecue people at all but their barbecue is great and they're innovative they're trying they're traditional things but they also are trying new things and right. they also are the only barbecue place i think i've been where they had a full bar <laughs> <laughs> i mean it's just a neat place it, it serves right. that community in a way that works right for gulf shores so sure. um and then there's there's some really special places um lanny's in selma is a uh, old barbecue place that's been there forever and it was where a lot during the the voting rights marches in selma back to this civil rights thing right. this is where a lot of them would, would eat lunch and meet and have meetings okay. and lanny's and lanny's does pork with sauce on it already mixed on it and on a piece of white bread and it you can't pick it up it's so messy <laughs> right. but what they do is they take a sandwich bread white sandwich bread sized piece of pork skin and fry it crispy and mm -hmm. put that on top of the sandwich so you've got that creamy pork right. and then that crunchy pork skin in right. the middle of a sandwich there's just so many places that are doing neat things like that right okay well so two other things uh local to alabama both with a musical connection that i saw on your website you had a picture from muscle shoals 
did you just uh, visit there as a as a no. music history fan? No. Or was that part of an assignment? Alabama Tourism, when they finished, re, they reopened it as a, a few years ago. They they, mm -hmm. they had restored the studio to a working studio, but also as a as a tour site right. because so much history was from there, music history that is shared across coast to coast. So Alabama Tourism, Lee Tell hired me to. They were going to name it Alabama uh, Tourism Side of the Year. Okay. I think it was 2018, maybe, mm -hmm. or something like that, around then. And they went, and they needed, they hadn't opened yet, and, they, and Lee was, wanted me to get something that they could use to promote it as part of the, the announcement. So okay. I went up to photograph the, stu the studio, and uh, it was fantastic. Mm -hmm. It's an amazing place. The piano in the middle of the room is the one that Paul Simon played Kodachrome on. I mean, right. there was so much history going in there. Uh, the Swampers, you know, were there. Right. David Hood's got his bass place over here where he played right. bass. And and I went in, it was really neat, but the drum room's dark mm -hmm. and the control room in the back room's dark. So I took small uh, Canon flashes and, and put co different colored gels on the flashes in each of the different spots because they already had multicolored bulbs in different places in the room and I wanted my light to match it, not be white light. Right. So I lit, I lit it and then I, brought, I put a guitar up in the foreground of the picture to... Mm -hmm signify what it was all about, lean it against the chair and lit right. that. And it came out very colorful. <laughs> <laughs> so they were very happy. And so much history there. Um, it is a neat, it is a neat place. It's an amazing it. place. The other thing, sadly, people will not be able to check out these days. He has since passed, but in looking at your people pictures, I saw that you had a photo of Gip. Yeah. Who was another local institution he ran a juke joint out of his backyard in Bessemer called Gipps Place. And just for anybody who isn't familiar with kind of what that means, it's, it's just an informal backyard concert. Basically, he had this shack in the back and bands would come play and it was sort of BYOB. Uh, and there would, you know, I, the one time I went was in December, so it was cold. They had a, a barrel fire. Yep going to stay warm there might be somebody you know selling something you could eat or something but it's sort of a uh, low-key I, I don't know what was so how did that picture come about i guess that was uh they want to do a story on gips for birmingham magazine okay and uh that picture you're talking about is the one that ended up being the cover of the magazine and i think they were okay. they were their it was their favorite cover ever and it was <laughs> surely mine too because gip was amazing but right. he was so distracted so easily it was hard to get him to sit still and actually sure. show up for a picture he was just scattered and old and just going to do what Gip did and I mean going there was an experience every night the opening thing before they played any music was he came out and preached right. you know and it was just you, you tried to understand what he was saying but it was all basically about peace and love and um, then the bands would show up and then there were a lot of good bands that would come there just for the experience, not for the, because it was maybe not much or any money for it, you know, but right. they wanted to, Pass the to hat, say they had been thing. to Gibbs. Right. And it was a great venue, a really neat special place. And then what I didn't realize until uh, that shoot was how much he loved to dance with the ladies. <laughs> and uh, he danced with, it. I, I was hoping to get people dancing in front of the stage and nothing was happening early. The later it got, the more he started grabbing women in the crowd and dragging them out there, making them dance with him. Right. And then pretty soon he had the floor covered, and it was wonderful. It was really a fun shoot. <laughs> right. I, I hate that. That was probably, I went to several places doing stories that were called juke joints, mm -hmm. and that was the last of them, I think, of, right. a, of a true juke joint. Right. The other one that I did that was really a great one was uh, Pull Monkeys over in Sunflower, Mississippi. Okay. I don't know if you ever heard of it. Um, 
I, I'm not familiar. This guy was a he had he was a farmer and he had this rough building shack in the middle of his okay. field. Yeah. I mean, you were out in the middle of nowhere in Mississippi, mm-hmm. and it was as juke joint as uh, the original juke joints were f- home parties, parties in a home, uh, and they'd bring in music, and it was a way to escape right. from the world's problems and stuff. And and he, this guy, his name was uh, William Silsbury, I think. I may not get that right, but he was a farmer. When I went to photograph him once, he was wearing overalls and he was on his tractor. And I got him off his tractor to take his picture in there. And he had to change clothes because he had like a thousand suits and they were all bright colors and full. I mean, and he came back out with a red suit, with a red shirt, with a red tie and red shoes and a red hat for me to take his picture. <laughs> and and uh, it was, he called it Poe Monkeys and he had all, the ceiling was covered with, with stuffed monkeys hanging from the ceiling and some of them were in a new unique <laughs> positions. And, Right. That, and I th- they were. He was only open a couple nights a week, and uh, for the for the public. And there, there was one night a week that was just for the working women. <laughs> <laughs> and it was really, really a, 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 an incredible treasure in the South. And of course, right. it takes one character like him or Gip to keep those places going. And when they go, those places are gone. And right, right. So you are primarily freelancing these yeah. days yeah. currently right so more of the current day thing two things recently that i wanted to ask about one was your drone work and that's a thing that i, I don't know when did when did that start and how did it go <laughs> i didn't get a drone until um six or seven years ago when they finally had come out with one that was had a big enough chip to provide a, a good quality still image for, for a client. I mean, my whole career right. in the film days and early on was I'd get somewhere and say, gosh, if I could only get a camera up there, and now <laughs> right. I can. But right. but the first drones were rudimentary, and I mean, you, some of them you had to attach a GoPro to, or and I just wasn't interested in it that much. But right. uh, when they finally came out with the, the original, um, well, maybe not original, but one of the, uh, I guess it was the Phantom, DJI mm-hmm. Phantoms, I bought one of those, and it it's not. I'm not a drone photographer. I'm a photographer who occasionally uses a drone when it'll add to a story that I'm shooting right. or adding to a shoot. And um, I don't use it that much. But but when I do use it, it sure adds an element. And it, <laughs> it has brought me work because I'm doing a lot of work uh, the last few years for some architects. Mm-hmm. And they want uh, me to document the buildings they do. And they like to have people in the pictures. Right. Um, now, they used to have beauty pictures of the buildings, but now they want to see how they're being used in the pictures. And so there's a lot of people shots, but the ability to also give them a, some views with a drone is very attractive to them. Absolutely. So you can see not only the building, but the siding and things like that. Right. But I, I don't use it a lot as much as I should probably because I do enjoy it. And um, I've found some really neat pictures. I mean, the, 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 the Clanton Peached Water Tower. I've got a really fun <laughs> picture of that on my website. Right. That, and those are fun. It's a lot of fun. And uh, I use a Ma- uh, the Mavic 2 Pro. Okay. Uh, they've it's since been superseded by a three, but the new one's not going to give me anything that I can't do with the one I have now. And um, right. I really like it. It's a lot of fun, <laughs> and it's <laughs> and nice. you did get certified. Right. I got licensed oh, oh, uh, yeah, immediately licensed. when they when they first. Actually, there wasn't a license when I got it, but they were talking about it coming down any time. And so when they they started offering it, I went down to the FAA offices and took their big test, mm-hmm. got licensed. And in fact, I renew again for the third time this October. So I've had a license six years, I guess. Okay. And so I, um, I I'm a, I'm a business, an LLC, I guess. Okay. You know, a sole right. proprietor for for photography. And I wouldn't 
not go out with a drone and, and, and subject a client to any kind of liability. I mean, I'm right. very careful on things like that. You know, there's just things you just do professionally that you wouldn't, you don't, and things you don't do. And <laughs> right, right. The one person that I knew that had one that was experimenting with that, I don't know if he was licensed or not, but he was strictly doing it for his own, you know. Just, Recreational. Right, yeah. exactly. And so that was part of the other point you made about, you know, you're not, this is not a major part of your work. It's it's something you can kind of supplement your main work with, sliding a, an aerial shot into a package for a client yeah. or something I think like it, that. And it really, to, me it's, to me, it's like just having a different lens. Right. You know, it's just, it, yeah. It's a it is a nice addition, but what what was that experience of learning it for you like? Because it, you I'm sure knew the photography part, but the the flying of the thing, the getting it in position where you wanted it to be, and then actually snapping the picture. While I'm still nervous there. every time I fly. I'm so afraid <laughs> of crashing. Um, right. A friend had a friend of mine, not a photographer, just had a drone for recreational fun and. He was showing it to me one day, and so we went out one day to a park, and I he said, let's fly it around. He showed me what to do, and I did it. It was surprisingly easy. Mm -hmm. And because almost everything I do is still work, it's a lot safer than doing video. Video, you have to have motion and moves and right. turns and, and steadiness in the way you don't for a still. And you put yourself, you're a drone at more risk when you do things because you might be flying backwards to pull away from something and not see a tree. Or, right. And most of the drones can see, sense objects now anyway, but initially they didn't that much. And so I've been a lot safer with because I'm just mostly doing still work. But to me, it's really fun just to get <laughs> that angle I always wanted to have. And right. most of my shots are not, I'm not way up in the air. It's just getting a little higher. I did a shoot a few weeks ago for an architect of a building. And if I got up where I could shoot kind of, it was kind of up on a hill. So I could shoot straight at it and keep it look normal or slightly above the building. But if you go up too high, you're going to see all the air conditioning stuff on the roof and you don't want that. <laughs> right. So it's not that high. There are other things I do where I get up higher, but right. a lot of the work is not as high as people would think, you know, just, and of course you're legally bound to 400 feet. Right. So. Okay. And so you're, the main work that you do is with what, a Canon R5? It is a Canon R5. Okay. Yeah. So mirrorless, that was another transition. Was that I mean, electronic viewfinders, was was there any no, kind of learning I, curve I, to that? No. Um, I embraced it, it immediately. Mm -hmm. I love that camera body. <clears throat> Pardon me. Mm -hmm. It has saved me in so many ways because my eyesight was never good, and it's, mm -hmm. not, it's not gotten better. And the autofocus on that camera is just phenomenal. Mm -hmm. um, when I do, I do a lot of business portraits for, uh, for a magazine, and... Um, stories about a CEO or an attorney or a doctor, whatever stuff for business Alabama magazine. Mm -hmm. And, um, on portraits, I would hit 85% of what I was shooting would be focused fine. Mm -hmm. And I missed some that I didn't want to miss. And with that camera, I don't miss almost anything ever anymore. And it, the autofocus is so fantastic. Right. And, um, no, I love the camera. I know other people talk about it, you know, the camera for, there's fans of the camera and people who don't like it but it's for what i do and how i use it mm -hmm. it's the, by far the best camera i've ever owned and I, I just think the world of it i still have all my older lenses that fit the older body right and i have an adapter there's i don't need to buy all the new lenses because i have all the old ones and sure. they adapt in fact they're, i think they're sharper and faster focusing on that camera than they were on the old camera okay so i'm thrilled with it bonus <laughs> yeah <laughs> All right, so that that brings me to the last thing I wanted to ask you about, and and sort of 
very recent turn of events with all of the evolution starting as a nine-year-old with the Instamatic <laughs> and then having this career in photography and, and making the transition to digital and including drones and then mirrorless, but more recently you've kind of brought it full circle back to film, <laughs> right, with a couple of articles that you've uh, posted on 35MMC. So how did all that happen? What made you curious to dip your toes back into film? Always like shooting film, the film days, and I miss the darkroom days in a lot of ways. There was a photographer, John Dersham. I don't know if you know, yeah. you know John, mm -hmm. but, uh, and we've become friends, and he's been really encouraging me to, to get back into film, and, and his work is just masterful. I mean, mm -hmm. in a way that few people can ever master large format film the way he does. And, um, and it sort of dovetailed at the same time. I, I had always <clears throat> bought equipment what I needed. I, mm -hmm. I never I always wanted a Leica or Hasselblad, but my job didn't need those cameras. And if I had extra money or the ability to buy something, I bought the lighting I needed or whatever I needed right. and never spent money on those th cameras and stuff. And th by the time John and I became friends, another photographer here in town had a Leica he wanted to sell. And it's an old uh, Leica M4P. Mm -hmm. And uh, so... I had been looking at thinking about old film cameras and Leicas and stuff. I always wanted one. I'd right. never, I knew the Mystique. I'd never had played with one, never held one. I just wanted to try it out. And I just jumped on it before I could talk myself out of it. <laughs> I'm not big on acquiring gear I don't need. Right. And I didn't need that camera. But I love it. It's really cool. So I started shooting with that and playing with it and just having a ball with it. It was so much fun. But what I really liked to do was do some medium or large format photography. Mm -hmm. And then another photographer friend of mine I worked with in Little Rock, who's in his 80s now mm -hmm. and doesn't shoot anymore. And he called me one day and said, I've got these old cameras that, you, that I'd like you to have. He says, I think you'd appreciate them more than most people. And it, they're Horseman mm -hmm. uh, six by nine cameras, okay. uh, technical cameras. And they're beautiful. They're pristine. They look like they just came off the shelf. And I, so I started playing with those and shot some things with those. And I had a great time. So I've been trying to go through all my old camera collection. When you're a photographer... Uh, for as long as I have, you meet people that say, oh, I should give you this old camera I've got. And you end up with a collection <laughs> of old cameras, and most of them are junk, and a few more kind of nice. And right. So I've been trying to go back through and see which of these would actually still work. Now, I have my original uh, FM2. I have my original OM1. I have my Linstamatic. Oh, wow. There's a lot of cameras I had I don't have. I wish I did. Right. But I've had a Crown Graphic, uh, the old mm -hmm. press camera. Right. And I don't know where it, I got it. I've probably had it 40 or more years, and I've never really used it. So I took it. Two days ago, I went down to Moss Rock, uh, the mm -hmm. preserve here, the, the nature area, and took that four by five out and tripod and started shooting some frames with that. And it, I'm, so now I'm thinking, it's really expensive to have this process. I need a dark room. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm right. I, I'm really enjoying it, and I don't mm -hmm. expect to uh, work continue to work for many clients for mm -hmm. years. I I mean, there are certain clients I'll work for as long as I can, and I, I'm physically able to keep working and I don't mm -hmm. feel the age I am. I'm, I've got the energy and the curiosity and the desire to keep shooting, but I'd like to start shooting more things for myself. Right. And I think that'll be film a lot. Um, and so I'm exploring with that. And I really think the four by five or something like that would be the most fun for me. Cause it's so unlike what I do for my work, for my paying work, it, it's so uh, slow and contemplative and right. rigorous in its own way, but it's also so old school. And I, right. that's how I, where I started was, you know, that what years, 50 years ago. So, 
Right. Well, this has been great, Art. I really do appreciate you sharing your story. And, and again, like I mentioned, the hospitality, just having me over to check out your old cameras <laughs> and, and images. And and it's been great to talk with you. How how, how can people follow along and, and check out some of your work, your um, website? and My website is just my name, artmiripal.com. And then on Instagram, I'm at amiripal. So it's my first initial and my last name. So um, I'm on the U.S. Civil Rights Trail and U.S. Site. Civil Rights Trail. Well, it's actually civilrightstrail.com is the site. Okay. It is the U.S. official U.S. Civil Rights Trail, but the site is civilrightstrail.com. Okay. Well, this has been great, Art. I do. I really do appreciate it. No, oh, this Thank has been for a fun time. for me. Thank you. Okay. It's not. It's been. You know, every photographer loves talking about their work. So. Sure. <laughs> sure. But this was a delight. Thank you so much for coming over and doing this. Special thanks again to Art Maripol for inviting me into his lovely home and sharing the story of his career in photography, showing me some of his incredible concert images, and for gifting me a couple of the books we discussed. Please do check out the show notes for links to some of his work. Our theme song, Timeless, is from Mike Gutterman. Mike's music for creators is available at his Bandcamp page at mikegutterman.bandcamp.com. You can get in touch with Sunny16 at sunny16presents at gmail.com. And as our friend John Whitmore might say, always try and be a decent human being. <laughs>